Previously on Jane Danger, A Bird in a Cage Las Vegas was a quiet town where one could drink in peace and on most nights only with the occasional flirt coming up to try and stake his claim in this frequently farmed land that settled in between my legs. My name is Reginald. Reginald Marley. I had a friend, also a score composer. His name was George Mead. Hollywood is a treacherous place. It's filled with many people with fragile egos. People who don't like to have their power tested and will do anything to stay on top. You're telling me that people who make moving pictures killed your friend. I'm telling you that the people who make moving pictures will do much worse than just kill someone. 500 now and 500 when the job's done. I can give you the entire sum now. We'll discuss the rest after this is over. But you need to leave tonight. Chapter 3 A Town of Milk and Honey I exited the train with a clean thousand dollars in my pocket. Though, inevitably, my mind was racing trying to figure out how to spend it. I had a job to do, and Reginald did mention discussing more compensation once the job was done. An added incentive, no doubt. The smoky atmosphere from the train's steam fogged my view. Once I stepped through the smoke and out of the station, I was met by the gorgeous sight of orange trees and mountains different from anything we'd had in Texas or Nevada. Those were desert states. This was the beautiful mix of desert and coastal, and man did it live up to the papers. Reginald booked me a room at the Roosevelt. When he told me at the station before I boarded the train, it sounded like a dump named after a president. But when my taxi arrived, I was astounded by the beauty of the hotel. One nice bellboy helped me with my bags and escorted me into the hotel where the maitre d' stood at the front desk. Now of course I was used to the magnitude of the Las Vegas Strip, but usually I was too drunk and too depressed to take in the view of the many bars and casinos I frequented. Here in LA, I felt relieved. Not because I didn't take the job seriously, but because I was all alone in what seemed like a magical place. You may as well call me Dorothy, stepping out into the wonderful land of Oz. As I walked through the lobby, gazing at the celebrity pictures framed on the walls of the lobby of the hotel, I noticed the unusually bright colored pattern. The ceiling of the hotel was painted a sky blue that made you believe that you were walking under a bright and sunny day when you looked up. The right wall was a velvet color and the left wall was a shade of tan. There were tables and chairs set on the left side of the lobby where people could sit while waiting for their room to be cleaned or for their taxi to arrive. I could imagine that one would just sit at one of those tables all day, just taking in the sights from the window adjacent, but by the look of the people in this fast town, no one ever just sat and thought. These seemed like a people on the go, no different from Vegas. Why hello there. A nasally voice came from the maitre d' behind the counter as I approached. My name is John claude and it was then that I realized that his nasal voice was merely a French accent that had been carved down a bit through the years of living in America. How can I help you? I looked at him first, unable to speak. I never met someone so friendly in my entire life. His velvet blazer matching the right side of the lobby, and his tan shirt matching the left, and I guess his baby blue eyes match the ceiling. My name is Jane Danger. I may have a reservation under the name Reginald Marley. He took a moment to look through his leisure, flipping a few pages in, 
Next to his hands were his writing utensils that he used to edit the ledger. He also had a stack of brochures for sightseeing around Los Angeles for tourists. They included mountain climbing, tours of global studios and the other studios in town, and the best places to dine in LA. Ah, here you are, Miss Danger, he said with an added enthusiasm. We've been waiting for you. I'm sorry? Don't be so silly. You booked your room three weeks ago. This information alarmed and startled me. It didn't add up. Then I thought about it. Three weeks. That's the same amount of time Reginald professed seeing my ad in the papers. That couldn't have been just any old coincidence. Your room is on the left wing. If you need any assistance, just come down and ask, Jean said with a ladled enthusiasm that seemed almost painted on and performed just well enough to fool the average person into thinking that he wanted to be there. There was something odd about my name being in the ledger that unsettled me. Reginald didn't seem to me to be the type of person prone to deceptions, but here I stand, in a room that I supposedly booked three weeks ago. The whole situation made me second his intentions in my own presence. My room was beautiful, matching the rest of the hotel, looking out onto the spacious pool and the many visitors running around, all of whom looked famous or famously inclined. I was never much for cavorting and playing, even as a child. Solitary was my friend, and though I never had a shortage of sunshine and blue skies living in Texas or Vegas, I preferred the darkness of an empty room with the blinds closed. Though as I looked out at all the families enjoying their time in the sun, I often felt a longing that I tried to ignore. My life was never normal, and my family was never the type to go out besides the mandatory church services we would attend. I could not remember a memory of laughing with my parents. That sense of joy escaped our household and remained out even when my mother and I left. I shut the curtains and sat on the bed in the spacious room. That's when I turned my attention to the folder that I sat down on the nightstand. I had begun reading George's letters on the train car, but only got through three of the many letters before woefully dozing off. It had nothing to do with the content of the letters. It was merely my fading alcoholic buzz mixed with the late hour and the rocking of the train. I never stood a chance of staying awake. Now awake and present, I sat down on the side of the bed and began reading the letters. It soon started to hit me, like an arrow straight to the heart. The only cases I've ever worked were of no importance to me. I didn't care if the cat fell into a wood chipper and lost all nine of its lives, and as far as I could tell, neither could its owners. There was something haunting about the demeanor of Reginald. The passion in his eyes, the crackle in his voice, his overall nervousness when approaching me for the job. It was clear the stakes were high for him. And as I continued reading the letters, I realized that the stakes were high for me too. Many of the letters were incomprehensible in terms of design. That be the case, they never lacked substance as he bounced from topic to topic. I was able to find a common thread throughout each of the letters. Out of the near 30 I read, there was one name that showed up multiple times in each. The name Young. In light of confusing you, or leading you to the creek without having you drink, I have pulled one of the most profound letters that I could remember out of the case I keep in the basement. I would like to reiterate it to you word for word so that you may understand the severity of George's situation. It is quite on the lengthy side, but I hope you'll find the pages flying by like a speeding train. This letter, I do believe, gives you the best representation of George Mead as I had when reviewing the letters for the first time. Dear Reginald, As of my writing this, it is July 4th. 
our nation's birthday. Today I think of the term independence and what it truly means. Freedom is in and of itself a perfect concept, unadulterated and unprecedented free will. I say unprecedented because I don't think true freedom has ever been accomplished. Not that many haven't tried to achieve it. So, on this, the celebration of our freedom, I ask you this. Can anyone ever truly be free? Aren't we all prisoners of something or someone? Were the blacks truly free after the Civil War, or did they find themselves in a bondage of a different kind? Does not every country or person in it that declares their independence and gains it risk the inevitable exiting of a chamber designed by their former master and walk into another cell, this time of their own creation? Or does it only seem to be their own design? Aren't we all bound by some higher power's rules of creation? It's a very funny enclosure we create within that created by our master and that lied within the walls of a sort of heavenly ruler's predetermined outline for our lives. Very interesting contemplation, wouldn't you agree, Reginald? I guess I think of freedom often. For isn't freedom a quite frightening concept? The ability to take my own freedom, the ability to do what one wants exactly when one wants to, is such a foreign concept, even in an historic term. I think of the men throughout time that have gained a portion of their freedom in comparison with others of their time and ours. The Alexanders, the great kings and queens of Europe, William Wallace, Joan of Arc, the pharaohs of Egypt, and even they confined themselves to the restriction of a pyramid. They all rose to near holy powers, all to be opposed and defeated. How fitting for one who gains their freedom to meet an end so grisly as Joan or William. Is that the ill-fated ending of the book that awaits most that even ponder the notion of reaching for the proverbial brass ring of freedom only to be met with the just as proverbial smoking gun? But isn't that the thrill of life, working for one's freedom? I never once have gotten to reap the fruits of my labor, nor do I receive the sentiment pride of doing an honest day's work. I am neither celebrated nor remembered, yet I am scorching in the fire of another man's creation. And where does this fire lie? inside the walls of his creation. These walls are not built for comfort, nor are they literal, but they are real. Oh yes, they are as real as the walls of your house. I can recite to you every last detail from their stone bricks, a drab gray that lets in no light, just a cold drab that freezes my skin and chills my bones, causing my teeth to chatter. These walls have no limits. Every time you look down, they are built into the floor, no matter the establishment. Their height, no ceiling. They extend as far up as the eye can see, unconscious the field of them. Their scaly, rigid exterior that at one wrong term can prick your finger, causing you to bleed. I often prick my fingers along the jagged surface of the rocks and stones. I often wonder what possesses me to do such an absurd thing, for I am not a person that likes pain, nor can I say it agrees with me, but sometimes within these walls one can become almost soulless, a shell of himself, one that feels no pain, no love, no longing for something more than may lie outside these stony walls. Dead is the operative word to describe the feeling. For what do the dead feel? Do they feel pain? They don't seem to mind when the maggots begin to eat away at their rotting flesh. In fact, with writing this letter to you, Reginald, I have just uncovered the reason why I do this unlikely and painful practice. To bleed. 
as I smear my blood all over the walls around me, turning the drab gray into a vibrant red, I feel a sense of life, using what's inside of me to turn something dull into a piece of me. That's what Mr. Young calls my work. I guess the walls are a part of me. I have seen them for so long. I know every inch of their gray interior as I paint it red with my own blood. Once I have used all the blood I have to cover every inch of those walls that I can physically reach, something quite humorous happens. It rains. Then it stops as quick as it began. And upon glancing at the walls that I have painted red with my own blood, I come to see them wiped clean. I've come to the understanding that it was a taunting rain, meant not to reassure me, but to reaffirm the barriers in which my freedom was outlined. For I am free to purposely cut myself and drag my bloodied fingers across the walls, but am I not free to marvel at my own creation? Yet again I am reminded of my partnership with Global Pictures, and once again I commence the dance, a dance in which my only partner is the soulless stony walls of someone else's creation, designed to keep me contained. Do you know what lies at the center of my walls? It's the only thing I love the most. A piano. The purest of objects. It does no one any harm, yet it can make the toughest of people cry with the simplest of notes. Its sound can reverberate throughout a generation. It does have the potential to make one happy, yet I only find solace in making people cry. It is a transportive contraption that allows one to exit any walls and enter a world unlike any they've ever been, almost dreamlike, where the rules are their own and the freedom limitless. Every time I sit down to play, I go someplace new, someplace different, sometimes far away, sometimes very close nearby, I am always surprised by what I find. A different species that I can never seem to understand what language they speak, though when I play, it's as if I can speak right to them, it is truly transformative. Imagine my shock when I realize that my sounds and tunes are being recorded and played for people that can never understand the complexity of just one note, let alone a string of them. When I play a sound, I know not how, yet I have no trouble in writing it down. It is only then when I hand it over that I feel that all my own work, the beauty in which made the beast, is tarnished and I return to the drab gray walls. They become my canvas, and I paint my canvas with red. I must say that I am sorry for this long letter, and I hope it did not take up too much of your important time. I leave you to ponder the answers to the questions I posed earlier, as I have a trip to the stars and a canvas to paint. Your humble pianist, George Mead. After reading through his letters, I felt hard-pressed to begin my investigation in the most effective way possible, for after reading his pain in his own words, I grew an attachment that I haven't felt for anyone in my entire life. In a sense, I have never met anyone like George Meade, and yet I have never, even once, seen a picture of him. I felt that he understood just how I felt, though I never even tried to manifest it into words my own feelings about my life. The word soulmate might seem inappropriate, but I cannot think of a better way to describe us. George Meade is in need of justice. That is clear to see, but most importantly, he deserves it. As I pondered how to begin my investigation, I began with the two most common threads I found throughout George's letters. The mention of a Mr. Young in Global Studios. Then I remembered what the crooner had said right before his song, how he had worked with Mr. Young, the head producer at Global Studios. 
I also recalled seeing a brochure about studio tours of Global Pictures in the lobby of the hotel on the front desk. The rocking of the studio tram was more than exhausting. It gave me a headache that only came when being pushed from one side to another while an annoyingly way too happy person describes every nauseating detail of the movie studio. She pointed out the sets, the sound stages, the sandbags, and of course, the gift shop. She did say one thing that intrigued me the most. She had let it slip, her words not mine, that a certain movie producer was on the lot on this very day. He missed a Galvin Young. She said he was on Soundstage 11, as we so coincidentally passed Soundstage 11. When they finally let us off of the tram to use the restroom, which was set next to a smaller gift shop on the studio lot, I decided to place myself in a stall in the ladies' room. I waited and waited until the sounds of the chattering tourists and movie enthusiasts dispersed, and I heard the engine of the tram wander out of range. I crept out from the stall and proceeded to move through the gift shop and out the other side. Now here I was, alone on the studio lot, about to get an unfiltered taste of Hollywood. It wasn't hard to find Soundstage 11 since we had passed it on the way and it was the only building with a giant 11 screwed into the side. Getting to Mr. Young, however, was a different matter altogether. The security was anything but lackadaisical. I found myself carting in some wires and pretending to sneak past the security guards as a regular day worker. Hey. The shout from a security guard sent a shiver down my spine that would freeze me to the core. What are you doing, girl? He said with a condescending tone that made me pity his wife and mistress. His head was dripping with sweat from the beating sun, and you could easily tell he wasn't used to the heat of the West. He was probably some failed actor that took the job of security guard to stay close to the business he never had the talent to enter. His jaw was as square as his brow, a chiseled physique that shouted out tough guy. I'm taking these to the set. They need them. I said trying to convince him that I was supposed to be there. He ran the back of his hand across his forehead, wiping the sweat from his face, flicking it off onto the floor in a disgusting waterfall. He eyed me with a look that was easy to see that he didn't believe me one bit. Who are you? He asked me. I'm Mr. Galvin's assistant. He stood up straight, stretching his way too wide back. What are you doing with those wires, then? Just trying to help out any way I can. Now if you excuse me, Mr. Young has requested my presence and you're making me late. I gave him an icy stare that screamed move and move he did, at his own pace, of course. Now that I was inside the confines of the set, I quickly dropped the wires off to the side and looked around for Mr. Young never expecting him to be a needle in a giant haystack. I've never been the biggest fan of the pictures. Most of my experience comes from late night drive-ins, but then again, I never really watched the movie. Still, the scope of this stage was a bit breathtaking. The amount of people hanging from the rafters, the screaming and harsh encouragement of the stage manager looking people was quite intimidating. Everyone seemed to be working overtime at a pace that stressed me out. Mr. Young, Mr. Young. I heard coming out of the hustle and bustle of the crowd of workers. I quickly turned my attention to see a woman in a high skirt running with the clipboard in her hand and waving a pencil in the air. My guess was that this was probably Galvin Young's actual assistant. She ran with her black hair bobbing in the wind she created in the heat by the speed at which she was running, a controlled frenzy I called it. She ran right over to a stumpy little man with a bald head that shined under the lights they had on. 
He wore black pants that hung off his body like a parachute blowing in the breeze. Connected to them were the suspenders that clutched tight against the white button-down he wore that was drenched with sweat. It was like everyone in Hollywood loved to sweat. His bald face was stern, a serious expression as he listened to his assistant give him some type of rundown. When he spoke, and it was easy to tell when he spoke because he spoke with emphasis. He took the pencil from her hand and snatched the clipboard from her and wrote down something in a hurry. I had to get closer to hear what he was saying. My steps were slow and still I almost got run over by some guys carrying a table. I hid behind some lighting equipment to hear the rest of their conversation. Now you go tell him that I will not stand for this last minute cancellation. We're doing this charity event for the people of LA and the people of LA will get the show they were promised with or without him. Now tell him that's all I'm willing to give him. That's the final offer. Take it or leave it. He stormed off after that. He sure has a mean way of doing something nice. I have to admit that my initial thought was that he was some evil tyrant, but he seemed like an okay guy. The way he responded with a smile to everyone he passed, always going out of his way to say hi and have a quick chat on the way to his trailer. Now my curiosity began to pique. Why would George paint such a malicious portrait of this man? Or was it my own bias that concluded that on its own? I followed him as he headed away from the set and towards his trailer. I quickly hurried to catch up, seeing that he was going to be alone for no more than 10 steps before entering his trailer. I quickly decided to change my approach from interrogation to polite inquiry as I didn't see a bad bone in his body. If he's not the culprit of this crime, then maybe he'll give me what I want. After all, he's setting up a charity event. How bad of a guy could he be? Mr. Young, I shouted out as I hurried towards him. He stopped and turned, squinting, trying to recognize me. It was clear that he couldn't. If I can have a moment of your time, I said. I don't have time for an interview. I just have to ask you a question about George Meade. And with that, his entire demeanor shifted. It was a shift sudden, but quite noticeable. Who are you? He asked in a hushed tone as he spoke. He made sure to keep his eyes peering around and not on me. That told me he was nervous. And for such a nice guy, what does he have to be nervous about? The name's Danger. Jane Danger. I've been hired to investigate the disappearance of George Meade. Miss Danger. George Meade hasn't disappeared, he said with a bit of a smirk on his face. Well, whoever hired me would say otherwise. Well... It's obvious to me that whoever hired you has their information misconstrued because George Meade isn't missing. He's dead. He's been dead for 20 years. This information shocked me to my core and I can see in the brown of his shifting eyes that there was much more to this case than originally met the eye. He's buried next to his parents in Evergreen Memorial Park. You want to find him? That's where he'll be. No good day. He waved over security and it was clear that my interview had come to an end as he walked into his trailer. On the next episode of Jane Danger, A Bird in a Cage. After an emotional and confusing past 24 hours going from impoverished disappointment to hired investigator, I decided to spend my night at a local bar downtown. Hello. Can I get you another drink? I'm David Haas, LAPD. Just a tired pianist being mined for his talent. 
He never sees the light of day, but one day he'll escape his custody and come back to seek revenge for his parents' death and burn the city to the ground. He puts down the letters on the nightstand. It's a warning to steer clear of the Hollywood elite. A ghost story. Nothing more. If he really was murdered here in LA, then there's a police report, correct? Yeah, we might have it somewhere in the archives. But you can't just walk in there. It's inside the station. That's when I turned back to him with a smirk that immediately let him in on my plan. Jane Danger, a bird in a cage, is an official copyright of Avery Goodwin. Voice recording by Avery Goodwin. Sound mixing by the Avery Goodwin Studio. Score by Averex. Foley by the Avery Goodwin Studio. Some of the sounds heard here were downloaded royalty-free from pixabay.com.